Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Lydia Kiesling's new novel, Mobility, tracks Bunny Glenn, a liberal State Department official's kid who ends up in marketing for the oil and gas industry, as she finds her way from post-Soviet boy-crazy teendom to climate catastrophe grandparenting. It's a brilliant book, clear-eyed, tender-hearted, and driven by the pain of adulting in a morally compromised world. We'll talk with Kiesling about the ethical trade-offs that her character makes, which just might sound familiar to some people here in our uber-expensive region. But first, you may have heard former President Trump was indicted. Again, we'll check in with Scott Schaefer about the latest. That's all coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Former President Donald Trump has been indicted on four counts related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. This is the indictment, the third for the former president, that many legal observers have been waiting for as it relates directly to the foundations of our democracy. Hours before the indictment became public, The New York Times released a new poll that showed former President Trump and President Biden in a virtual tie for the 2024 election if they end up their party's nominees. Joining us this morning to talk about what we've learned from the indictment and if it changes anything about next year's presidential race, we're joined by Scott Schaefer, senior editor of our Politics and Government Desk. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott. Hey, Alexis. Good to be with you. So this really is the big indictment, charges against him for attempting to overturn the election. What's jumped out at you from looking at the indictment that you know everyone should be paying attention to? Well, I think you have to go back to the January 6th committee that uh, you know Nancy Pelosi put together, uh, included Adam Schiff and Zoe Lofgren from California. I mean, they really did the work that provided a roadmap to what we saw yesterday, which was this 45-page indictment uh, looking at Trump and his being at the center of these conspiracies to really undermine the democratic system of the country that he was leading at the time, uh, really trying to undermine the peaceful transfer of power uh, and doing it knowingly. You know, he has said that uh, he really believed he won. He knew he lost. I mean, they know that from all the testimony they've gotten from witnesses who were around him and with him. Uh, And so I think you really have to, A, credit the the work that the House did uh, in in getting this, pulling this together. Um, And then, of course, there's, you know, the the broad political implications. You said this is the one indictment that uh, legal observers have been waiting for. But, you know, there's another one, another shoe waiting to drop down there in Georgia, in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a whole other case where he's on tape talking with the Secretary of State, the top election official in Georgia, saying, can't you just find me 11 or 12,000 votes Mm -hmm. uh, to help him win? So, 
all of these things. And, and, you know, in a sense, we say this is the third indictment. In a way, it's the fifth because he was impeached twice. And impeachments are essentially, I mean, they are an indictment. He was acquitted by the Senate. Uh, but this is a guy who has defied political gravity. You know, he has been the Harry Houdini of American politics. Every time you think he is uh, can't escape from the, uh, the jeopardy that he's in, <clears throat> you know, he does seem to somehow escape. This, of course, is mounting now, and you know we'll see if it has an impact. As you said, the polls seem to indicate that so far, at least, it has not. Mm-hmm. And the fundraising, too. You know, there's a work on Politico that every time Trump has been indicted, he gets a big bump in fundraising. He has, but, you know, at the same time, he's using a lot of that money, tens of millions of dollars, uh, to pay his legal bills. Um, you know, he's asking, actually, they've taken the uh, very unusual step of asking to claw back uh, uh, a large uh, contribution they made to another super PAC on Trump's behalf because they're running out of money. And so you do have to wonder how much longer are, you know, quote unquote, average people, you know, going to send five, ten, fifty dollars to him, um, you know, seeing his troubles, his legal troubles mount. And maybe the answer is they'll never get tired of that. You know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. We'll get return to the politics in just a second. But to your point that the House did a lot of work, as did many reporters, you know, ac- across the of country course, to yep. bring all, all of these things to light. When you're going through this indictment, at least when I was going through it, I was kind of looking for are there are there new pieces of information? Are there new bombshells to add to the series of bombshells we've had over time? This really felt more like a methodical assemblage of facts than it was you know, filled with new revelations. Do you think that's fair? I do. I do think that's fair. I mean, there are also six co-conspirators who are not named, although it's pretty clear who most of them are, including John Eastman, the former dean of the Chapman Law School. But you're right. I mean, this, you know, I think the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, has really put this on a fast track. Um, and so he is trying, I think, to get this trial uh, underway and completed before the 2024 election, which is fueling some of the criticism from Republicans, including members of the House like Kevin McCarthy, who say this is just weaponizing the Department of Justice. But yes, I think that he has assembled this a, a very tight case and a limited case based on the facts that he was able to gather on on his own with his investigators as well as the House and then get this thing moving. You know, you mentioned um, John Eastman, former law professor, uh, former guest on this on this very show, and you've been following him closely for a long time. What do you think we might learn uh, about his role? Well, I think it's pretty well known. I mean, he was there. If you look at January 6th, the video clips, he was standing there behind uh, Rudy Giuliani just moments before people marched to the Capitol. Uh, he concocted this uh, crazy idea that Mike Pence, the vice president, could uh, invalidate uh, the election results and, and really um, uh, embrace fake electors from other states. This is a cockamamie idea, a legal idea. You know, he's, he's under threat of losing his law license in California because of uh, the unethical things that he did uh, in, in his role here trying to undermine the results and the peaceful transfer of power. So he has long since been basically fired from Chapman. Um, and, you know, but back to this fundraising, he has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. from Trump supporters to help him pay for his legal fees. So I think what this says is, you know, if you look at the people time and time again, going back really decades, people who become part of Trump's inner circle, whether they are high level people like Rudy Giuliani or low level people like the tech guy who, you know, manages the videotapes at Mar a Lago. 
they get sucked into this vortex mm. of legal troubles that ends up, in, you know, in some cases ruining their lives and draining whatever savings they have. You know, KQED's uh, Brian Watt, one of our uh, esteemed colleagues here, spoke to California Congressman Adam Schiff this morning, and he asked him about whether Trump supporters cared about whether he committed crimes. There's not much that can be done about that segment of the, you know, public opinion. Uh, for those who, you know, have such devotion to him, they don't care if he's a convicted felon. They don't care if he's committed serious crimes. There's going to be no changing their attitudes. But I think for the majority of Americans... They don't want someone who's a felon occupying the White House, let alone someone whose felony involved trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So, Scott, what do you think? I mean, this doesn't seem likely based on past evidence to shake a lot of his core supporters. Mm -hmm. But what about the other people, other people who, for one reason or another, have remained some somewhat undecided. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, ripples from that, uh, Alexis. First of all, I think you've got independent voters who have now turned against Trump. Not a, not in a huge way. You know, that poll you alluded to, he's uh, the New York Times this week. It's still basically tied in a head-to-head matchup with Biden. But you do see slippage among independent voters who often are the key in some of these swing states to, uh, you know, winning the state and the electoral votes, the electoral college votes. So I do think you're seeing some of that. Um, I do think you're seeing more Republicans who support Donald Trump saying, you know what, we need to move on uh, mm-hmm. because he's just taking on too much water. But, you know, at the same time, in that same New York Times poll, in a head-to-head matchup against Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, Trump gets 22% of Republican voters who think he's who think he committed serious crimes. Oh. Uh, you know, so <laughs> there are there is that core that will stay with him, you know, to the last dog mm-hmm. dies, or yeah. whatever that expression is, you know. And so, yeah, but I do think, you know, you're seeing the elite, quote unquote, elite members of the party, you know, business people, um, some of the wealthier donors, people like Rupert Murdoch, you know, who had been with Trump in 2016 and 2020, turning away and realizing, look, this guy, not only did he lose in 2020, he lost in 2018 uh, in terms of the midterms. And really, you know, the House lost ground in 2022 as well because of some of the lingering effects of him. So let's bring it here to to the state. You know, California Republican Party has made some changes just in the past few days, which a, a lot of observers have seen as doubling down on Trump. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we have a March primary coming up, and um, the California Republican Party, under the old rules, delegates delegates were were distributed by congressional district. There's 52 congressional districts now in California, and if you want a congressional district anywhere in the state, you know, you could get some delegates and take those to the convention in Milwaukee. <clears throat> you know, under the new rules, it's, you know, anybody who gets 50 percent plus one, so gets a majority of the votes in the Republican primary, and they don't let decline to state or no party preference voters. It's just Republicans voting in their primary. So if Trump were to get 50 percent plus one, he would get all 169 delegates. And the prospect of that, I mean, he is way ahead in California right now in any poll. Uh, And so that is going to discourage other candidates from getting in. That means that, you know, he he may have money here. Yeah, all of all those things. You know, it may scare other candidates out. And so, yes, and and Trump has rewarded that uh, rule change by saying, you know what, I'm going to come to your convention in Anaheim at the end of September and I'll be your keynote speaker. That'll help them, you know, raise a lot of money for the party. So, uh, you know, the party so far in the state is very much in line with the base. You know, there's also been, you know, these are the kind of core politics. But when 
think about the foundations of democracy, it really is about election integrity, right? And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you've seen kind of knock-on effects of so many months of messaging about fraud in elections and election integrity coming out of uh, the Trump camp. Is that having any effect, you know, here in California at, say, the county level? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, Exhibit A is Shasta County up north uh, a few hours, right off of the I-5. Uh, you know, the there was a, going back to last year, there was a recall. They had all Republican members of their five-member board of soups. One of them wasn't conservative enough for the extreme right wing up there. He got removed. And now they voted somewhat recently to move from, uh, this is a result of all the attacks on Dominion, the Dominion voting machines, to move to a hand count of all elections. There's really, there's much more potential for mischief and fraud uh, in hand counts than there is for, you know, counting these ballots through machines, mm-hmm. uh, which have, you know, paper ballot trails and all kinds of things. So, you know, you're seeing that up there. You're seeing attacks on local elected um, uh, elections officials in many counties, mostly in red counties, but not, you know, not just there. Uh, and so, yeah, you are seeing it happen. It's it's somewhat isolated, but it is not, mm-hmm. uh, it's not uh, just places like, you know, Michigan or mm-hmm. uh, Georgia, you know, Arizona. It's it's happening here. Yeah. I mean, Scott, you've been covering politics for a long time. Um, do you ever think you'd see this kind of indictment and this kind of attack on election integrity in the U.S.? You know, I think going back to 2016, we're all out of the uh, prediction business because so many people just said Donald Trump can never get elected president. And look what happened. Look where we are today. So, yeah, I've never seen anything like it. And just, you know, you have to yeah. stay tuned and see what comes next. Yeah. We've been talking about Donald Trump's indictment for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election with Scott Schaefer, senior editor of our Politics and Government Desk. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us. Thank you, Alexis. We'll be back in just a minute with Lydia Kiesling talking about her new novel, Mobility, after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. All right, let's get this out of the way early. This book we're going to talk about this morning is one of the best novels that I've read in the past decade. Bunny Glenn, Lydia Kiesling's main character, is just one of those literary creations who stays with you. It helps perhaps that I share a geriatric millennial generational affiliation and also a set of references with Bunny that were painfully perfectly chosen, like Mike Snow, 
uh, song, Animal. Recalling some of the female antiheroes of recent times and maybe even some of the cringe comedy of a Bridget Jones, Bunny Glenn is silly but not stupid, as her brother's partner notes. Really, she's wildly attuned to the pressures that are encircling her, and she responds with her mind and her body to the hyperobjects of masculinity and global fossil fuel extraction, though perhaps not as she or we readers would like her to respond. I'm so delighted Lydia joins us this morning. She's the author of Golden State and now Mobility, the first book from the new Crooked Media imprint of Zando Books. Welcome, Lydia. Hello, Alexis. Thank you so much for having me. And wow, um, can you introduce me at all public appearances <laughs> from now I'm on? I'm coming. I'm coming to all of them. Um, <laughs> so set us up a little bit. Give us a little bit of the arc of Bunny Glenn. I mean, you don't have to tell us everything, but we meet Bunny at kind of 15 over this kind of languorous hormonal summer. How does she grow up? Like, where's her life take her? So Bunny Glenn is a foreign service brat. Um, that is something that she and I share. So that was definitely sort of the origin point of the novel was trying to think about how to how to write those um, strange, you know, yeah, kind of languorous. I love that word. Summers um, being a teenager, already feeling a huge sense of alienation, but then sort of compounding that by being in a place that is very unfamiliar to you and sort of having some autonomy, but not enough to really kind of get to know the place well and um, make your way there. So that's how the book starts. And, you know, we we see Bunny as she's sort of watching things happen around her in Baku, Azerbaijan in 1998, um, which was a period of great activity there, um, especially for the oil and gas industry. Um, Azerbaijan is a very oil-rich country on the Caspian Sea. And um, so Bunny is just kind of watching men, oh, it's mostly men, um, from sort of young to old as they scheme and gather. And um, that really kind of sets the tone for things that happen later in her life and for the rest of the book. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to tell listeners who should obviously go read the book. We have to tell them. Eventually, she goes into the oil industry. <laughs> so, she sure, she sure yeah. does. <laughs> so one of the questions that's really laced throughout the book is how culpable any of us are for, like, the, quote, state of the world, particularly mm -hmm. in, in climate change. And you kind of do this beautiful job of kind of worrying at the seam between this individual and their constrained choices and, you know, the big forces of the world. So in this moment, I mean, how do you think about ethical work um, at a time when we we know that many things are contributing to climate change as well as other structural problems in the world? Oof, well, you know, that's a really big question. And I, I want to hasten to say that, yeah, so, so Bunny joins the oil and gas industry. You know, she doesn't do it super intentionally in the beginning, but then once she's there, she really digs in and is like, this is the ladder I'm on, so I'm going to climb it. Mm -hmm. And she wants ends up in a position of sort of what she calls storytelling um, and sort of shaping narratives for the oil and gas industry, which, as we know, is like incredibly important um, to that industry, particularly now at a moment when the public tide and opinion is really finally like definitively turning against those companies. Um, I think I, I was thinking about this a lot when I was just reading and learning about the oil and gas industry, because there is so much work that goes into that industry. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the primary drivers of the global economy and their workers at every level. Um, and one thing that is a, a really kind of provocative to think about and is, is not the case for Bunny, but 
a lot of the people who are in frontline communities most affected by both the environmental damage of oil and gas um, extraction and production and refining and the climate effects, those are often the same communities. And the people most affected, often that is the major economy where they live. Mm-hmm. And so they themselves are basically forced to work in those industries at, at, in very different sort of types of roles than than Bunny herself is. Um, and, you know, oil and gas has been a major tool of sort of national sovereignty and self-determination, or at least ideas about it. So it's this really powerful force. And there are a lot of really kind of compelling stories wrapped up in it. So as I'm reading, I'm I'm feeling compelled by those stories, but all of them, you know, of course, have to be like retroactively seen from what we know now, which is that climate change is literally, you know, has is threatening all of humanity and has already killed really countless people, and that oil and gas companies have known that that was going to happen st- since the 1970s. Um, so I do, that's what I was kind of wrestling with is you know, finding a way to tell some of the the stories about the industry, or at least sort of those romantic narratives that can be very seductive for, for some people, um, while also knowing, you know, what we know about the industry and its role in the world. We're talking with writer Lydia Kiesling about her new novel, Mobility, and the kind of ethical compromises that people make in the the everyday. We want to hear from you. I mean, are we what we do? Does your work conflict with your ethics in, in some way? What kind of compromises have you made just to kind of survive? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us Twitter, Instagram threads, we're KQED Forum. So you mentioned, you know, some of the frontline communities. I imagine you might be thinking of like Port Arthur um, mm-hmm. or some of these other refinery places in these very sacrifice zones. And there's a kind of particular geography to that oil world that people, you know, in this area may be less familiar with. Like in tech, people know like Taiwan and certain parts of China, maybe particular parts of India because of how they're connected to Silicon Valley. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the kind of oil landscape as it you know, developed over time. Uh, wow, that is a huge question. That's like my worst nightmare. That it's like it's like someone someone asking me to explain like what is the economy. Um, no, I. So it could be the, the things, oil landscape as reflected in the wonderful new novel Mobility by Lydia Kiesling. That would be fun. Yeah. Let's do it that way. Um, well, okay. So one of the the major narrative challenges, and again, I'm going to use that word seduction. It sort of like comes up a lot in how I think about this of the oil and gas complex is. For, for novelists especially, is its vast size. So I was thinking about the region of the Caucasus because my family was posted to Yerevan, Armenia um, from 1997 to 1999. So I spent mm-hmm. some time there. Um, and Armenia, unlike Azerbaijan, does not have immense oil wealth. So that is a fundamental difference. Um, and I was really thinking about what those, you know, about those differences. And as I'm reading about... <clears throat> the region and this sort of scramble for for oil rights that happened in in the 90s um i'm also learning just about the the global oil landscape because you know there's oil and gas in 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 every corner of the globe or at least you know sort of it's distributed around the globe let's say mm-hmm. um and reading about those the the struggles that have characterized every place that has oil and gas um really 
you know, large scale human dramas and tragedies, it's for a novelist, you're like, oh my gosh, there are all these stories. Wow. How do you, how do you talk about this? How do you think about this? And then it becomes completely overwhelming. And I really was floundering um, with the story <laughs> for a while when I was, cause I was sort of like, I'm going to connect all of, I'm going to connect it all. I'm going to talk about all the places, you know, because you can, you know, just thinking about, for example, like Saudi Aramco, that's, you know, one like million page novel. Um, right. And actually there is Nigeria. a one of, the, yeah. one of the, yeah, or Nigeria. And, you know, one of the great like Petro novels is uh, Cities of Salt by Abdul Rahman Munif. And that is, you know, sort of a fictionalized <clears throat> account of Saudi Aramco. But so in any case, yeah, it's completely overwhelming when you try to really think about all the places. So I kind of took it back. I had, you know, scaled it down and I talked about Azerbaijan um, because that was a prime sort. And I think it was a prime and sort of underreported or at least like in I think in America, we have a sense of certain countries as being like oil countries, but I'm not sure that a lot of Americans who aren't in the oil and gas industry aren't are really necessarily thinking, thinking about, about Central Asia. Yeah. Yeah. About. Yeah. So I was but it was a really important spot geopolitically in the 90s. And there was a lot of scheming that I read about, um, especially in a, a really great book called The Oil and the Glory by Steve Levine um, about how basically primarily BP and Chevron, but, you know, a lot of also like individual players were really fighting um, for these oil contracts. And then at the same time, my dad, his family is from Houston, Texas, and I have really not spent time there, but I, you know, have been thinking about it the older I get, because there are some like kind of oil connections in that side of the family. And so, I, even though, you know, there isn't necessarily like a, a very tidy line between, you know, Southeast Texas or Houston and Azerbaijan, there is just in the sense that oil and gas kind of is flowing through yeah. the world and will link up at some point. So those were the regions that I focused on. You know, once you know a place like Baku or, you know, Azerbaijan, one of these places that is kind of important in some global map, but that other people have no idea what it is, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that secret knowledge starts to become kind of its own motivator? You know, it seems like that for Bunny at times that she has come to understand, you know, how the real world works, what the hard questions really are and making hard decisions relative to, say, her brother who kind of taps out teaching English in Europe. Mm hmm. Um, wow, that's what I'm sure Bunny would be very gratified by that <laughs> by that comparison. So I think Bunny is someone who is is comparing herself to her family members a lot unfavorably um, because, you know, her when her father is in the Foreign Service and as any, I think, Foreign Service brat knows, that is a completely like totalizing career. So it is if someone in your family is in the foreign service that dictates where you live, um, how you live. It, it necessitates a lot of moving, a lot of logistics. So, you know, that's one sort of model that bunny has in her life. Her brother, her older brother seems to be kind of setting himself up to go in a similar direction. He joins the peace corps. He goes to, uh, you know, an elite college, he goes to the, into the peace corps after. Um, and then bunny's mom, had had a career as a flight attendant, um, which is an incredibly demanding career. And she was working in sort of the golden age of air travel, but gave that career up um, in order to sort of 
support her husband's foreign service career and raise kids. So those are the those are sort of the examples that Bunny has around her. Um, and I I think Bunny feels a lot of insecurity, especially in her you know early to mid twenties as she's she knows she's out of college. She's an English major. She realizes she has no marketable skills in you know the economy and market in which she finds herself which is i think something that many um, humanities majors although you know they're now saying like humanities majors actually have an we're advantage back we're back in the workplace <laughs> but but you know i remember looking for a job in 2009 you know obviously a, a memorable time in the global economy and I'm just like applying to job after job saying, you know, I'm attaching my resume. Like, thank you for your consideration. And there was just so little that I felt I, you, you just think about your education and you're like, wow, my education has uh, on the surface nothing to do with uh, with yeah. what the employment opportunities you're are. Like, it's strange that the 18th century British novel has <laughs> not made me more attractive to, <laughs> you know, the g global capitalism. It's a weird thing. Um, yes. <laughs> So Bunny, yeah, Bunny find, Bunny has to fashion a narrative for herself to, you know, impress employers. And you can see her trying to kind of play with that and being like, I was an archival assistant or, you know, trying to sort of mm -hmm. give herself to fluff herself up a little bit. And that is a dangerous path in our sort of workplace, but one that our that our economy, I think, really encourages people to do. Um, because then once she does find a little foothold for herself, she digs in and is like, this is it. No, I, yeah. I can't think of something else. And, and I love that, the phrase you had earlier. This is the ladder I'm on, so I'm going to climb it. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like so many people find themselves in that position, even in, in industries, maybe they don't even hate them. Maybe it's not even oil and gas. Maybe yeah. it's, you know, the technology industry where they latched on as a, you know, product manager. And now they're like, wait, do I actually still believe in, in what we're doing here? And is that even a question I can ask myself? Yeah. Um, that is a question we are asking you listeners. What compromises have you made in your working life? Or, you know, alternatively, what opportunities have you turned down because it, you didn't feel like it matched up with, with who you were? You can give us a call at numbers 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on social media, of course, we're KQED Forum. I want to take a, take a first call here. Uh, Rebecca in Oakland, welcome. Hey, Rebecca. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Hi. Um, thanks for... I can't wait to read this book, by the way. Um, sounds really good. Uh, I love the character. Um, so I'm a hairdresser and have been for over 35 years. And one of the things I've wrestled with is there's got to be something more important for me to do in life. And after 35 years, I finally realized, you know, it, it's like bringing out people's beauty is a great thing. We need more beauty in the world. But one of the things is the engine of the beauty industry is to sell more product, products mm. you don't believe in, sell mm. hair color, because that's the thing you do. And I really, in the last year, have cut off all my hair, letting my gray show and like I'm empowering women to show up as they are, mm. like to to play with color as a as a as an accent versus, you know, having to cover it up because you're supposed to. And I feel it's a going against the grain in certain terms mm. of letting myself be me in my own work. And it's like, how is I supposed to do that if I'm covering it up myself? Oh. So it's been a real. Um, empowering thing to do and i just i just thought it related somewhat yeah 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 no yes, I, yeah absolutely. lydia what do you think yeah 
Um, Rebecca, I love that so much. Thank you so much for calling. I, there's actually so much resonance with what you're saying with this book too, mm-hmm. because one of the one of the sort of recurring themes um, is Bunny's position as being kind of stuck in the in the sort of like white normative feminized beauty standards of you know her her society, and you really watch her sort of like she's always fussing with her hair she's you know getting a balayage she's worrying about her weight she's you know buying makeup and you know those are things that i are deeply familiar to me too and um i love what you talked about how you know bringing out people's beauty is such an important job that is really valuable work but yeah when you sort of think about how to decouple it from some of the from some of the kind of unfair standards that especially women, um, you know, face in our society. So thank you so much. I mean, some of the scenes that you have of Bunny in the workplace, in particular, as she's kind of starting out her career in this kind of admin pool of people doing collating and proofreading, mm-hmm. those moments actually really sing as as moments of kind of camaraderie, like uh, mm-hmm. borderline solidarity. Yes, um, the admin pool. And you know what? I, I, I got to shout out the admin pool of um, a mid-sized family. I was about to say, you had to have been in that pool. All right, good. <laughs> in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, um, circa 2009. Um, yes, when I, when I was in that period of like, I'm taking the liberty of attaching my resume. I finally got a job as a temp admin assistant. It was temp to permanent. Um, it, uh, in a, it was an engineering company that mostly did like dams. Uh, it was not, it was not oil and gas, but sort of like hydro stuff. I mean, I had no idea. <laughs> I don't know what it did. Um, and yeah, I was proofing things, uh, formatting things. I knew everything about Microsoft Word and I learned from the greats who were, which were the exclusively women of all ages in that admin pool. And that's a, I really think about that a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, the sort yeah. of. The, the brittle camaraderie that we established in that environment. We're talking with writer Lydia Kiesling about her new novel, Mobility. She's also the author of Golden State, which we're going to talk a little bit after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Lydia Kiesling about her new novel, Mobility, out just yesterday from the new Crooked Media imprint on Zando Books. Um, 
Lydia, you started writing this book during the pandemic. You were writing and editing it during the great 2021 Pacific Northwest heat wave, which we actually just talked about earlier this week on a show on extreme heat, when temperatures getting to 116 degrees up in Portland. Did you experience that? And did the experience of that in inflect this book at all? Um, yes, it did. It certainly inflected um, the because initially I didn't know whether I wanted to like go into the future at all mm-hmm. with the book. It was mm-hmm. not really my plan. You know, the book moves through time and it really jumps years forward with <laughs> seemingly randomly. Um, but I was resistant in uh, to putting it in the future because I worried that it would be too on the nose. But then I realized that was stupid because that's really the <laughs> That's that's right. what we're that is the that is the reason that we are that we need to fight now. Um, in a way, the so yes, it it absolutely inflected it. I'd say what I saw during the um, Pacific Northwest heat dome, which I'll just you know without getting too in the weeds about sort of municipal failures, but I will never forget you know telling people that they could call 211 um, to get a ride from the city to cooling centers and then finding out that nobody had told the subcontractor who runs the city's 211 program here that they were going to be doing they were going to need weekend hours so and the heat dome happened over a weekend so people were were calling and just getting like one of those endless menus oh, um an after hours menu and then at the same time the most sort of visible um relief effort at least in my neighborhood was a small scrappy mutual aid group Hmm. um mostly like very young appearing people who just like pulled together like a command station and clipboards and supplies and you just would go there and they'd be like go here like go to this encampment go to this encampment like here's the stuff you need to bring and so seeing how the sort of um larger failures and i think many regions like in Texas with the um, power grid and just many, many people have sort of seen some real flailing on the federal, state and local level in terms Mm -hmm. of government. And then who has kind of stepped up have been these individual communal efforts. But, you know, ironically, that's not the book is really not about the the people who do those efforts. Um, and that was something I, I kind of struggled with is that it was basically like erasing um, the all the people who aren't like Bunny. But the way I sort of put it to myself is like, what I am what I can bring to a novel is my deep experience of the attitudes of sort of Bunny's, mm-hmm. Bunny's cohort, because I myself have, you know, been a part of them and shared them. And it felt important to document them as sort of like, this is how we, this is one of the reasons that we get here. And this is what we need to fight against, I guess. Well, and there's just far more people who are sort of being carried along by the mm-hmm. currents of history and kind of making decisions within a fairly constrained window than there are people who are trying to change those larger forces or even acting at that individual level, mm-hmm. um, doing doing that kind of mutual aid. I mean, certainly during the pandemic, there were so many efforts like that where you know people at a, a whole bunch of different scales were like, well, nothing can be done because our government is sclerotic and not responding well. So I'll just do X or Y. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that I always worry about is, you know, do those efforts add up to good? <laughs> do they add up to sufficient, let's put it, um, uh, uh, as a way of matching the, the size of the problems of the world? Um, I mean, they just they sort of have to um, when they are currently 
I mean, I'm, I don't want to, I know there's, you know, a lot of rhetoric and sort of argument right now about doom versus optimism versus, you know, with regard to climate stuff. And, and I, and I do, you know, know that there are a lot of, um, really great minds who are like, we cannot, like, we cannot promulgate climate doom because it really inhibits action. Um, and oil and gas companies are really kind of counting on that. They're counting on everyone saying like, well, I use a car every day or like plastic isn't everything in my house. Like, what can I do? So I really understand that that um, is sort of like an important philosophical thing to not like only promote doom at the same time, you know, I'm a novelist. It's not, I, and one novel is not really, <laughs> I can't make it like galvanize the world. <laughs> and when you see, yeah, just how, I mean, there's so much nobility in all of the human effort that is going against these sort of broader, like sclerotic forces, as you, as you put it. And um, in the pandemic, there was so much like amazing, it was beautiful to see what people did just on the smallest level. And I mean, I don't think those efforts necessarily are going to be able to like completely alter the uh, global economy in like one fell swoop, but it can make a huge difference in terms of like saving one person's life, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who you see like outside and it's 116 degrees and, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they need a ride to a place that's cool and sort of thinking on that level is going to be increasingly necessary. And I think helps to inspire people to action because yeah, it is totally overwhelming when you think about the systems and how sort of stacked against us things are. But on the individual level, we have a lot of, a lot of power still. It's actually kind of one of those times where you feel like, man, the novel is sort of perfect for describing these forms because it's not, you know, global scale or individual. It's, it's both, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, let's, um, let's bring in Don in Menlo Park. Welcome, Don. Hey, thanks. This sounds like a really interesting book, so I'm excited to, to find it. So um, I'm a geologist, and I made an active decision not to go into oil and gas, mm. much to my husband's dismay because of <laughs> our loss in financial security in that respect. But um, as a ge- I'm a, uh, I have a PhD, and so I do lab geology, and I find that the oil and gas industry is so insidious um, for a couple of reasons in my professional and my personal life. So professionally, like, we need oil and gas for the plastics to do the experiments and to mm-hmm. run the instruments in our labs. We have not found mm-hmm. an adequate substitute for that. And I find that really kind of um, vexing because mm-hmm. as I, I use a, a nitrile glove or whatever, over and over and over again, or I try to, and then I eventually have to throw them out. But, if, you know, you go through these things, over, you know, disposable things all the time in labs, and it's just heartbreaking. Um, and you can't get away from it, so it's insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, and then personally, my daughter was a NICU baby for three weeks, and while I was there, it's just like the amount of plastic waste mm-hmm. that we need in the hospital mm-hmm. necessarily to keep things sterile and clean is just ridiculous. I just, I was so you know, amazed by how much stuff is thrown out as, um, in the medical industry. So I I had to go through these mental gymnastics, right? Because obviously I want my kid to live. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Well, and I just want to say, Don, you hit on like an incredible trope within the book, right? Is this sense of like, well, well, Lydia, you describe it. I'm sure you're hearing the same, the same thing. Um, well, first of all, I, I really commend you for, for making that choice because 
what I have, there's an amazing book. I'll just say briefly um, called Gaslighted uh, by Christine Williams, who's a sociologist. And it talks about uh, women, specifically geologists and engineers in the oil and gas industry. And the way she lays out how basically if you are in those professions, you are funneled into oil and gas because they are funding the educational institutions. Mm -hmm. They're providing those research opportunities. So it's really actually like a huge thing to to say, no, I'm not doing that because it's very set up for you to do that. So, wow, I really applaud you. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the plastic thing, I, my cat has diabetes. I give him an injection twice a day and he's a cat and these are plastic syringes. Mm -hmm. I And it's like, yes, that's, I think about that all the time. Um, and yeah, again, I'd say in the, one of the things that, you know, Bunny and that's one of those things that that the oil and gas industry it's just so helpful for them because you know that is how things are set up and nobody wants to if you put it to someone like well the choice is is do you want your kid to live or do you want us to like stop making plastic in our mm -hmm. you know retrofitted refinery and that's an that's an impossible choice for people to i mean it's just it's really unfair and i i wish i, I there are people who are really great at like someone like Naomi Klein, for example, I think does an amazing job at being like, no, that's like, that can't be the the sort of question that we pose because that's how they win. And like, let's talk instead about, um, you know, distributing like power in a different way. So that that's where I fall apart, you know, as a novelist, I'm <laughs> like, if someone's like, well, what do you want? What do you want the refineries to do then? Like, how do you want to get your plastic stuff? And then I'm just like, Oh God, like make it out of wood. And then, yeah. <laughs> then it's really easy to just like dismiss me as, um, you know, someone who doesn't know what they're talking about, but there are people who do know what they're talking about and who are able to think at those really large scales. And, you know, I, I do feel faith thinking about you know the minds who are out there who are like saying a this from just sort of a philosophical and like discourse standpoint we can't let them make it so that that is those that feels like those feels like the two choices and then also like here's how we create an energy industry that like doesn't that doesn't result in this extreme waste and this extreme harm mm -hmm. you know it's interesting um Bunny strikes me as such an American character, kind of in the the way that uh, Don was describing of kind of going through these kind of mental gymnastics. I mean, part of it is that she has this kind of studied unknowing, right? Mm -hmm. And the European and the kind of Central Asian characters in this book don't even pretend to not know that bad things are going on. You know, her brother ends up dating this Swedish journalist who really relishes in kind of the digging into these ugly realities. And it's it's interesting because it's easy to see that as kind of a, a character flaw in Bunny or in America. Mm -hmm. Do you see anything good in it? Um, I mean, I think, uh, I well, first of all, yes, I, I it's absolutely. I think Bunny is um, meant to have a lot of kind of qualities that I feel are ones that are were embedded in me um, as an American, and especially because of that sort of foreign service upbringing, that means that from a very early age, your sort of sense of yourself is like, I'm an American and I'm in a place that's different. And there's an inherent sort of Amer American supremacy tied up in that, um, in that sort of upbringing and that setup. And that's one that as an adult, I've really you know worked on unlearning and am unlearning every day. Um, 
and yeah, I think, you know, that's so true is sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll meet people from other countries. I mean, I don't like, not that the Sopranos is like the, has all of the answers to um, every cultural difference, but <laughs> there's a, a, a line where um, a, someone who is Russian tells Tony, like, we Americans, Americans are like surprised when things are bad and we expect things to be bad or something. But she says it in like a, a better way than that. So um, I was, or at least in a better line. accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess sort of there is a, there is a, an optimism to that, but I'm, I'm hard pressed like at this particular moment to necessarily see that as like a positive thing. Um, but, but then again, like I, I live that every day cause otherwise I wouldn't like get out of bed. So, mm-hmm. you know, I have to, uh, look on the bright side and or try to find try to find what the bright side is and i guess molding that from something that's just like obliviousness and willful kind of blinkers and ignoring things and channel it into like let's not despair let's take action let's do things there is a lot that we can still do and that's what i would i think bunny actually would have been really great at that if she had been surrounded by people who provided that model for her because Bunny's such like a chameleon that she really learns how to fit in in whatever environment she's in. And that is, I think, to her detriment because if she were around people, you know, who were like, no, let's face what's going on. Like, let's let's do this. And that was her social circle. I think she could have brought a lot of, uh, you know, positive energy and action. But <laughs> because she's in, she's always drawn to rooms full of like old men who... <laughs> are scheming um that's that's she ends up being part of their hierarchy and that's um she's always gonna she's never gonna like win at their game i would say yeah let's bring in um luke in katati welcome luke hi there hey i wanted to know if the guest had ever saw the clips of barack obama talking to a gala in houston in 2018 Um, i have not bragging bragging about making the United States num- uh, the number one exporter of fossil fuels. I, right. I, sure, I surely believe that, that those clips are out there. That would not surprise me at all, but no, I haven't seen them. Well, and I think an interesting, an interesting point about that that you're making, Luke, is, you know, I think in Bunny's world, um, you know, Obama is a signal of kind of like progressive liberal politics, and yet those progressive liberal politics also fit very well with the expansion of fossil fuel production in the United States at at that oh, time. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and that's another reason that it's so uh, that's what talking about those sort of like those choices that that it feels like it's really easy to be like, well, do you want electricity? Like, do you want do you want to be able to get to work? Um, do you want people to have jobs? And that those are so useful for the oil and gas industry because when you think about it especially when you use language like energy and you Mm -hmm. talk about sort of like a standard of living that is american has americans have been really good at sort of inextricably tying together standard of living with oil and gas um so yeah i mean thinking about it on those terms of course like for politicians that that was what they've would it's in their interest to do that to say yes we want cheap plentiful energy for everyone we want jobs for everyone we want you know a four bedroom three bathroom house for everyone you know there's no there's no downside for most politicians at most american politicians that like throughout american history that has been a very compelling uh thing to say but yeah that it it can't 
It can't be like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I once heard like a longtime Department of Energy official under a bunch of Democratic administrations talk about, um, you know, fracking and the enhanced oil recovery that started mm-hmm. happening in the United States during kind of the period of this book as being like a miracle. It's like, I don't know if we deserved it, but it's a miracle that's been visited on America. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think that one of the fascinating things about having the book go into the future is all, all of those kinds of statements and decisions will be reevaluated. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, they are. Yeah, it's happening kind of in real time. Um, I think the problem is that oil and gas companies are they see the future arguably better than a lot of us do. They have more opportunities to see the future. And so they're already changing now. Like it is amazing to go to the website of any oil and gas company. And like you would think that they're a company that makes like ceiling fans i mean they're 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 so like we're the green revolution we're powering the energy transition like we're gonna beat climate change together and so i think the the there are a lot of you know writers and thinkers who have talked about talked about kind of the lack of accountability and i and i do you know it's like you need to have an archive of these things because otherwise it is so easy for them to say oh we were doing we actually discovered climate change like we're the ones who who figured it out so like you're welcome everybody um and that is what they're already sort of they're they're positioning themselves to do that as as we speak yeah one listener comments, you know, as a buyer for Whole Foods Market, we're still adjusting to being bought out by Amazon, plus our payrolls handled by Wells Fargo. I don't support either of these companies personally, but support the original mission of Whole Foods Market. I remain while feeling these ethical concerns. Sure, a lot of people can relate to that. We have been talking with the writer Lydia Kiesling about her new novel, Mobility. It's one of the best that I've read this decade. You can get your copy at an independent bookstore near you, Green Apple Books. On the park, you're going to be there at 7 p.m. tomorrow, right, Lydia? That's right. I can't wait. Yeah. And also City Lights books on September 12th. Um, Lydia, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It was truly my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving your time to this book. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Thank you again. And everyone else, stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.